0: Good morning, everyone. It's great to be with you. If you are uh, visiting with us, you probably don't know we just started a new series, new sermon series, uh, throughout the book of Ephesians. And this morning, we're looking at the second half of chapter 1. We find Paul expressing things about his prayer life. What, What does he pray about? What captures his attention as he prays? And then we get an extended. Uh, lesson in prayer, an extended prayer uh, that we can learn from. And so we could spend a great deal of time just talking about Paul's practice of prayer and what that means for us and for our prayer life. But at the same time, we have an In-Town U class that is de- devoted to uh, learning about the personal spiritual disciplines. And so uh, if you want to know about how to pray uh, specifically, then you can go visit that class. What I would like for us to focus upon this morning is one word in here, and that's power, power. We're going to look at the power to name, the power to know, and the power to love. Let me read our passage and then pray for us. This is our New Testament reading. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God God In every way. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, this is a a rich passage. It's a challenging passage. It's a scary passage because if Jesus, if you are the king of the entire world, of the universe, then that means that you are king over us as well and that we have to wrestle with that, that we have to determine our lives underneath your lordship. And so, Father, I pray that you would help us to see this morning that it's not a dictatorial reign. It's not a tyrannical reign, but it's a reign of grace. It's a reign of love. It's a reign of mercy. And so, Father, as we wrestle with this, let us see that the power that you are speaking of here is actually power given for us, to make us holy, to make us lovely. And Father, I pray that we would take hold of that, that we would wrestle with it, and that you would wrestle with us. Lord, we pray as we encounter your text that you would illumine our hearts and our eyes and our minds. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it was announced this way this week that the, the new Pope, Pope Francis, would canonize two former popes, Pope John Paul II and Pope John the 23rd. And what that means is he's granting them sainthood. And in the Roman Catholic tradition, it means that a person has had extraordinary influence on the world and on the church, and they've had two confirmed miracles. Now, Francis is fudging just a little bit because Pope John doesn't have or only has one miracle. So he's just kind of giving him sainthood by declaration, by, by fiat. But saint, this word saint, or what was translated in our passage, holy people, the conventional meaning is that they've lived an exemplary life, that they've been good, that they've had a life of integrity, of sacrifice. And that's okay because we should remember people who live lives like that. We should honor them. And we're so accustomed to hearing it as a term of honor in a membership in some sort of spiritual hall of fame, that we have this sort of dissonance when we hear it applied to a mixed bag of people like ourselves, like the modern church. How many people would look out at the modern church, look at what's going on on TV and the Christians who are proclaiming messages about who God is and say, they're all a bunch of saints. They're all a bunch of holy people. For this reason, verse 15, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your love for all God's people, his holy people. This is too oblique because it says your love for the saints. When I've heard of your love for the saints, these are the most holy people. These are people who have been set apart and made to be holy, made to be recipients of God's special love. We're not talking here about veneration of saints, or prayer to saints, or saving relics that the saints might have actually touched. This sort of superstitious idea didn't happen for centuries afterwards. But what Paul is talking about, the saints he's referring to in Ephesus are the mom, the shopkeeper, the parent, the child, the shepherd, the person who cares for other people. These are the saints that he's talking about. And Paul's ecstatic because he's had this relationship with the Ephesian church, and he sees that the gospel that he preached to them is now overflowing in deeds of love and mercy towards one another, that they actually care for one another, that they love one another. And he calls these people saints. Hagios, in verse 18. Again, not the first word that comes to mind when I look around it, Christians I'm familiar with. When I look at myself, that's not the first word that comes to mind, saints. Friedrich Nietzsche said, if you would like me to believe in your Redeemer, you ought to look a whole lot more redeemed. Isn't that true? When we think about ourselves, who we want to be, who we believe that God wants us to be, certainly we would say very quickly, well, I'm no saint. I can't even get to work on time. I can hardly keep a New Year's resolution for more than a month. Have you seen my house? It's a disaster. I'm not a saint. If you really knew me, you'd never say I was. But yet Paul, the Apostle Paul, is not bashful at all about calling the believers at Ephesus saints, and he wouldn't be bashful about, bashful about calling you, if you're in Christ, a saint. He picks this word, that identifies them by what God has done in them and for them, not what they do for God. And what this word does, if we will allow it to name us, to label us, is it cuts beneath all the other ways that we might define ourselves. It gets behind our appearances. It gets behind the mask that we wear. It cuts, gets between all of the roles and functions that we define ourselves by. Instead, defining ourselves primarily in terms of who God is for you and what he has been up to in your life. Friend, if you are in Christ, you are a saint. You've been set apart for something that is beautiful. But it's less about your moral rectitude, your moral record, and it's much more and only about the fact that God has gotten into your life and he's changed you and is changing you from the inside out. That's what it means to be a saint. It means to be a person in process of becoming holy and being set apart as holy. And so Paul prays this prayer of thanksgiving. He's excited to see this church that has been formed, this group of people who are growing up together in Christ, who are practicing their resurrection together. And they can't accurately be defined by anything other than God's persistent, sustaining, gracious care in their lives. Eugene Peterson, who's a pastor and a theologian, he actually wrote the book from which we are, get our title for this series, Practice Resurrection. I said last week that he came up with that term, but I actually think it was Wendell Berry. But that's just an aside. He says he contemporary, contemporizes this idea of being saints. And he says this involves a radical shift in perception, both of ourselves and of others. We grew up in a society that evaluates us by appearance and role, by behavior and potential, we are endlessly tested, examined, classified, praised, damned, admired, despised, flattered, scorned, kissed, and kicked as thoroughly secularized things. Not by everyone, of course, but by most. The institutional way of looking at us in our schools and businesses and governments gives its imprimatur to it this systematic and pervasive desoling, depersonalizing and in the end debunking of anything in or about us that has to do with God. What he's saying, what Paul is getting after in this passage is that if you're in Christ, you have a new name. And that name is saints. And that name relativizes all the ways that you've named yourself and all the ways that other people have tried to name you or have named you in the past. Paul is challenging each of us. Paul is challenging in town 2,000 years later to determine ourselves, to understand ourselves, not in terms of how we feel about ourselves, not in terms of our performance, of whatever behavioral standard you subscribe to, not necessarily even as our parents have named us, our teachers have named us, our classmates have defined us, not in terms derived by our social status or our job or our appearances, but as creatures lovingly made beautiful by God himself, made to be holy. Holy. You see saints doesn't refer to what you are in and of yourself but who you are in Christ. Not what God what you do for God but what he has done on your behalf. And this incomparably great power has given you a new identity based upon his gracious love. He's renamed you with his incomparably great power. You know, if you walk out, I'm not sure what phase the moon is in right now, if it's big and beautiful or if it's just a sliver. But if you go out on one of those nights where it's just glorious and you can see the whole thing and it lights up the whole sky and it's incredibly bright, so bright that you can almost read from it. But it's not really bright at all, is it? It's not beaming. In fact, it's just a, a cold, hard, dark rock that revolves around the earth. It's lit up entirely by the sun. It's reflecting something. And it's beautiful when you walk out there, but not because of what it is in and of itself, but because of the sun lighting it up and making it glorious and beautiful. And that's what Paul is getting at here, is that no matter how you look in and of yourself, no matter how unsatisfied you are with your own appearance or your performance, that when you're in Christ, you're made to be beautiful. Beautiful. And you're simply to reflect. And you see that when you do that way, when you think about your beauty in terms of that, then when you fail, you can be even more beautiful because you can say, yes, but I'm rescued. Yes, but I'm made beautiful. I'm made holy in spite of my failures and sin. If you're in Christ, you're made to be, you're named a saint and you're made to reflect his glory. It's the power to name, first of all, and the power to know. A few years back, um, Abby, our daughter, was having a really good day with her brother, Elliot. And sometimes, you know, they can squabble, but on this particular day, she was being really nice to Elliot and invited Elliot into her room to play with him. And so she came down and told her mom, she said, Mommy, I let Elliot play in my room today. And so Katie said, really, that's, that's great, sweetie. What, you know, normally that's difficult for you to do. So that's really great. And she says, yeah, I changed myself. I changed myself. From what I was yesterday, I just chose to change. If only it were that easy, right? If only we could just change ourselves. I'm done. Whatever we aspire to, I'm going to change and accomplish it. But we know that's not how change really works. We know that our motivations are very complex. Our self-talk is very complicated, just as Steve alluded to in the Romans passage, that we have these competing desires at work, and sometimes we're not even sure if we understand them and which one's going to win out. I really want to lose weight, but I really want that second cookie. I really want to be a nicer person, but, ooh, he just burns me up. I really want to take time to read and be more contemplative but I'm so busy. We have these competing desires, and we're always vetting them against each other, and we hope one will win win out, but often these competing desires that aren't good for us, that are distorted desires, undermine those things that we think are best. And if you have made any attempt at significant personal spiritual change, you can understand, because maybe you've tried for years to break a bad habit, Maybe you've just given everything you can to stop some self-destructive behavior. Maybe it's just to become more giving, more sacrificial. But you find in your actual experience that these desires are undermined all the time and constantly by competing desires. But yet, Paul, Jesus actually, Paul here, is extraordinarily hopeful that you can change that your patterns of life can change, maybe not as quickly as you would hope to sometimes, but you can, in fact, become a more whole, a more integrated person. And your desires and your wishes and hopes for the future can become more integrated with what God's wishes and hopes for your future are. He says in verse 18, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people are among the saints. Paul is praying that the the call of God, the calling that he has given to these Ephesians, that he's brought into their lives, that, that they would get it, that it would get into the nooks and crannies of their lives and it would change them from the inside out. Now, he says his glorious inheritance in the saints. And I read it a few times before I realized that he's not talking about our inheritance. He's talking about his own inheritance. Paul is talking about God's inheritance because just a few verses earlier, which we looked at last week, he was talking about how wonderful and glorious are Christians' inheritance, that there's something that is coming, that is yet to come, that you can look forward to. And he dwelled on that, but here... He changes it around, and it's God's inheritance. What does God look forward to? What does he dwell on? What enriches his mind? What delights the eyes of his heart? It's you. It's you. You're his glorious inheritance. You mixed bag of people. (laughs) You sinners. Me. Me. We are his glorious inheritance. That's what he is excited about. And he's begun a work. If you are in Christ, he's begun a work. He's set you apart. He's made you to be holy, and yet there's so much more yet to come. There's a fuller revealing of his grace and mercy, and that's what he's talking about, that you are his glorious inheritance. With all of your idiosyncrasies and your sin, he loves you and wants to be with you. What is remarkable about, remarkable about Christianity as a religious system, as a concept of spirituality, is that God doesn't want you simply to aspire to some new level of devotion or enlightenment or even moral sainthood. Although he wants all of these things for us, he wants us to grow in holiness and to conform with his will. What does he want more? What is much more at the root of that. He wants to know you and he wants you to know him. He wants to be in a rich, fulfilling, loving relationship with you. And Paul wants you to know this so much that he uses hyperbolic language to try and lure us in. He wants us to know his incomparably great power. And one commentator made the comment that He uses these three words, and it's sort of grammatic excess. Incomparable is hyperbolum. That's the word that we get, our word hyperbole, exaggerating. The next one, incomparably great, is megathos, anything great or big or grand. And then power is dunamis, which is the word we get our word dynamite from all of these words, he tries to crunch them together and say, do you get it? Do you get how big this is? I'm going to be excessive in my grammar so that you can hopefully get it. And the Hebrew idea of knowledge from which Paul would be skilled in is very different from even the Greek idea of knowledge, which was around the world at that time, and certainly different from our Western idea of knowledge, this in post-enlightenment rationalistic idea. For the Hebrew mind, knowing is not an abstract idea. It's not just a concept. It's not something that lodges only in your brain. To know something in Hebrew thought is to understand it not only cognitively. It doesn't mean just to memorize it, to lodge it in your noggin, but it's to receive it into your whole person. It's a comprehensive knowing that involves the intellect and the emotions the believing and the doing. And those things in Hebrew thought can never be disconnected. Those things are completely integrated. And that's, what, that's the way in which he wants you to know God. Comprehensively. Intellectually, emotions. Believing and living it out. I want you to completely, com- comprehensively know God. His being, His grace gets into your heart and your life and changes you from within. So it's not just saying, here's where I want you to grow to. So stand up really high, really tall, and grow. Instead, it's look at what God has done for you. Look at who He is. Look at how He inhabits your heart and what He's given for you. And it changes you. It can't not change you. He prays that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. In other words, that we would receive the Bible not as a textbook, but we receive it as a love letter, that this is God writing a love letter to each of his saints, each of his people, everyone who is in Christ. And if you're investigating Christianity this morning, if you still have big questions about whether you can become a Christian, Let me just encourage you that investigating Christianity is much less like studying for a philosophy exam. It's much less interacting with the facts as Christianity presents them, though that's important as well. It's not simply a worldview, but it is a system of life. It's a system of relating to God as a child. It's a relationship. Katie and I met and married in about 10 months' time, which to us was pretty quick. In about six of those months, we lived in in separate cities, so we wrote letters to one another. And I mean like with an actual pen and paper that we folded up and put in the mail, and then it arrived like two days later. We used to do that. Um, We have a book at home, a folder full of these letters, and they're great to go back and read. But as much as we long to really know each other, the circumstances limited us because we didn't live in the same town and we got married pretty quickly. And so when we got married, we were introduced to each other in a whole new way. And this is true for anyone who gets married. You meet your partner in a sense uh, in a whole new way. Oh, that's who you really are. But for us, it was even more severe because we just had not spent a great deal of time together. We were married. We had done the ceremony. We had the piece of paper. But in, really, in many ways, we really didn't know each other. I mean, I could tell you the facts of her life. I could tell you where she grew up. I could tell you her family tree and her history and what she liked and that sort of thing. But I didn't really know how all of those things were interconnected I didn't know the meaning and the significance of those experiences in our life until we got married and started living together day in and day out. When you become a Christian, it absolutely involves your mind. It involves believing certain things and knowing certain truths about who God is and who he claims to be in your life and the way that he is at work in the world. But it's so much more than that because you have to be in relationship with them to understand how all of those pieces fit together and why it's important to believe certain doctrinal principles and truths. You do that in relationship. And that's why two of the things that we're talking about doing and we're, we're really promoting and pushing you guys to this fall is in-town you and community groups. In-town you, you go and you learn. You put on your thinking cap. It challenges the way you think, and you learn new ideas and concepts about God and about spirituality. But we want, more importantly, to push you then into a vibrant, real relationship. And that happens in community groups. It happens here. But that those two things, living in community, practicing the Christian faith, and learning the Christian faith, can't be dichotomized in that way. They have to be together. Power to name power to know to really know God to be in relationship with God and then finally quickly the power to love I mentioned uh, Nietzsche a few moments ago and he talks a lot about power and it's misuse and that basically all of our motivations are a will to power over other people and certainly he lays that at Christianity's doorstep and says it's a big deal about power about gaining power over other people And he says, my idea is that every specific body strives to become master over all space and to extend its force or its will to power and to thrust back all that resists its extension. But it continually encounters similar efforts on the part of other bodies and ends by coming to an arrangement with those people and those bodies that are pushing against it. They come into a union with them that are significantly related to it. And thus, why? Thus they can conspire together for power, and the process goes on and on. That's how he sees human institutions and human bodies and human persons relating to each other. It's a struggle for personal power. And you even use people. If you can't will over them automatically, you use them and as a group gain power over others. Contrast that with the story that Paul tells about the world in Ephesians. Contrast that with the story that, God, that Paul tells about God himself, that he uses this incomparably great power to do what? To, to tyrannize, to set up a totalitarian regime where you bow or else? Absolutely the opposite. He uses power to exert himself under your need to submit himself to your good. Instead of using power to exert himself over you, he uses his power to submit to everything that you would need to make you beautiful, to make you holy. I pray, verse 18 again, that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glory and inheritance in his saints and his incomparably great power for us. Who believe that power is the same as the mighty strength He exerted when He raised Christ from the dead and seated Him at the right hand in His heavenly realms? Nietzsche's Christian, uh, critique of Christianity is that it's a will to power. That Christianity, like so many other power structures, structure is just setting up a system whereby the weak serve the strong. But with Jesus, friends, it's exactly the opposite. And maybe Nietzsche's right that we haven't lived out this ideal very well, and so it certainly can look like that from the outside, but it cuts at the very core of what Christianity is all about. Jesus is exactly the opposite. The powerful serve the weak. Jesus, the Son of God, lays down his life. Instead of taking it up in power, he gives it up for you. But wait, you say, maybe, didn't you read the rest of our passage? That power is the same as his mighty strength, which he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power, and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in this present age, but also in the age to come. God placed all things under his feet. Now, that seems like that's, contradicting everything I just told you, but what's the purpose? Why is Paul telling them this whole thing about how powerful Jesus is? It's so that you can know that in him you're safe. There's no other name other than what he names you that's relevant any longer, that has power and holds sway over your future. It is only Jesus that he has taken up power in the heavenly realms to grant you status as saint, to grant you the ability to know him to begin with, and to grant you love. Why does he take up and say, I am more powerful than all the other powers in the whole universe? It's so that you can know, friends, you're safe, and your salvation is real if you're in him. And nothing can ever change that or snatch it away. It's the paradox that God himself, with all of his power, bows to earthly power, that Jesus, the most powerful man who has ever lived, God himself becomes defenseless and becomes stripped down for you, for love. And there is no greater love than one who is powerful, but who gives up power on behalf of those that they love. That's true strength. That's true power. See, you and I go through life trying to maintain power, we don't want to let go of our, or let our guard down. Never let people see our weakness. Never let people see you cry. But that, that's actually weakness because it's fear, because it's f- maintaining control. You're afraid to let go. And here, what does Jesus do? The most powerful man who's ever lived, God himself, becomes utterly weak, to demonstrate his love for you, to rescue you from your sin and even death itself. And so the key to understanding his love, to knowing the power of his love is having the eyes of your heart trained, enlightened, seeing this, meditating upon Jesus, giving up all of his power and being crushed on your behalf because you're his inheritance. You're what made him willing to go to the cross. You're the one who made him willing to become defenseless on your behalf because you're his inheritance and he can't wait to experience it fully with you forever. Let's pray. Father, we covered a a lot of ground and this is a a passage that's, that's pregnant with meaning and with great power. And... Lord, I pray that we would see your love at the heart of it, that we would be able to see how you have exerted your power on behalf of those that you love and your people. And I pray that as we come to the table, as we confess our faith today, that you would let us see that even more and that we would experience it by trying to live in light of what we read today. Would you give us strength to do that? Would you give us mercy? Lord, would you let us fall in love with you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.